So Lisa, I'm noticing that our listenership is going up. So thank you to all the unfazed fans. We appreciate it. Please share, please like, please post all of that on our social media outlets. Um, But I'm also noticing too, that there are endurance sport communities that are now considering DEI, whether it's your local tri-club, your local bike shop, wherever. And I think it's really important for us to make sure we set our folks up for success to make sure that it's not just one more thing on their to-do list in endurance sport, but how can we Mm -hmm. centralize a few things for them as they do this work? Yeah. So it's not an add-on. It's a lens through which you analyze, transform, create, right? I think that's what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I have my favorite theory. I know, Lisa, you have favorite theories too. Um, So maybe we can start with this one. I would love to talk through this theory of community cultural wealth and how we can apply that to the endurance sport community. So we're going to be a little scholarly today, but we're going to make it practical for them. What do you think? Sounds great. Let's do it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So I'm noticing in lots of different industries, whether it's endurance sport or corporate, wherever it may be, that DEI is creeping into their work. I'll give credit where credit is due. It's creeping into the work. But I would love to get to the ideal situation where it's not an addendum to a document. It's not a additional strategic plan. It's it's none of that. But instead, it's central and the lens through which they consider all of their work. And so, you know, sometimes it's hard to really figure that out, right? Because you and I, we've spent lots of time and energy kind of looking at all the different ways through which to understand DEI. I have my favorite go-to on this um, and it's called Community Cultural Wealth. And it's an article that was written by Tara Yasso back in 2005 that's been applied in education and lots of other settings. But I think it's one that you and I could kind of talk through together. Um, Lisa, how would you, if you had to describe social capital to those of us who may not have studied it too deeply, mm-hmm. how would you just describe that to another person? Like social capital, I rub elbows with someone. What, what does that actually mean to us really? Oh, well, gosh, putting me on the spot here. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> I would say it is the power that you have either, um, real or imagined, perceived within the social context. So Mm. that could be um, in a particular community, like in the endurance sport community, you're looked up to, people trust you for whatever reason, you have um, a lot of weight with the things that you say, or it could be in um, another community like higher education and um, the same kind of people orbit you right? Because they mm. think that you can open doors for them. Um, yes, 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 yes. That yes. sometimes is, is inherited and sometimes it's built. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And there, I think that's so interesting. I love that word orbit because you're right. It's kind of the, this network, right? You think of, you know, all the planets and the sun, you know, that's a, 
really a network that people kind of connect and stick together in certain ways. And you might be the son of that solar system, if you will, you might be central to it. And that's truly how one aspect of this community cultural wealth works is that most people have kind of heard of social capital, meaning that you have some type of network, you have some type of relationship with someone that can be used as a resource. So social capital would be oh, well, I'm going to Colorado for a couple of weeks to work and I need a great place to swim. Where should I go? Let me use my social capital by calling Lisa to see, hey, where should I go that's close by or near you? Hey, I know this great place. There's a membership. However, if I put you down on the list as my friend, you can go for free. Those types of things happen when it comes to uh, flexing power in order for people to have access to certain things. Some people are born with lots of social capital. Some are not. But I think this is really important because, you know, imagine I'm, I'm thinking about, for example, the pros, let's say, you know, Rennie and Tim's kids go into triathlon. <laughs> they have yeah. a hell of a lot of social capital, oh right? Oh my gosh. Yes. Tons. <laughs> exactly. They would walk in with tons of social capital versus someone that comes into this system of endurance sport, not knowing anyone personally. Um, my very brief example was that I worked uh, at a university and I only knew of one African-American woman on my campus that had done one triathlon. (laughs) And that's how I got started. I talked to her and said, Hey, (laughs) tell me all about 70.3 racing. Tell it, tell me now, this is before I even knew there were distances, different distances, all of that. (laughs) But she was my like, shoestring social capital, right? So, but it can be built over time. Now, Lisa, you know, we got people stopping us at races telling us, mm-hmm. yeah, we love Unfaced. Yeah. So, you know, social capital changes and can change over time. So that's one area of community cultural wealth. But I love that you brought up that some people are born with it. Some may not have it, but some people acquire it. I think we're acquiring it or have acquired it over time. That's one piece of it. The second piece of community cultural wealth is that aspirational capital, meaning that you have these hopes and these dreams, but they're all in the face of certain barriers, right? So, you know, think about that person who, God forbid, was in, I don't know, a car accident years ago, and they were told they could never walk again, but their dream was to do a triathlon. And then they do it. They have this hope or this dream. Okay. Okay. Um, or let's think about people in um, differently able folks where a person, you know, in a wheelchair thinks, oh, I could never do a triathlon, but then they see someone do it. And then they get the bike, they get, the, mm. they get everything they need and they make it happen. And so that aspirational piece kind of gets to what we were saying, Lisa, many, many moons ago around the branding and marketing of endurance sport it's hard to really think you can do something unless you see others like you doing it. So, you know, we, we've, we've called on certain races to say, wait a minute, look at your marketing here. Um, Does this reflect the people that you want to attract to the sport? Right? Like we've, we've called people out on that before, Mm -hmm, I believe Lisa. mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. interesting because I'm kind of like chewing on the aspirational capital piece and, you know, I'm a big um, proponent of naming and calling out ableism, um, even when I do it myself. And um, the concept of inspiration porn, right? And the way that able-bodied people elevate um, folks with disabilities when they achieve something um, that the able-bodied 
person assumes they have done in the face of or in spite of their disability and therefore they um, are superhuman or if they can do it, I can do it, right? So I'm, I'm aspiring to do what you did, but it's centered on a belief that there must be something special about you to be able to do that mm-hmm. when you had a leg amputated or if you are blind, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, that's not a fully formed thought, but that's just kind of what it, that's, in, that's an interesting kind of mm-hmm. subset of capital that also dovetails with this really oppressive right. narrative. Right, right, exactly. And, and, you know, our goal is, you know, how can we flip this? Because the whole point of community cultural wealth in total, the big umbrella of these concepts was to reframe how things had been seen as a negative and turn it into a positive. You know, that some people thought, well, social capital meant there's a country club that no one can ever get into ever in life versus reframing that to say, oh, well, we can acquire social capital. And how do we plan to do that? Yes, we realize it's unfair and it's in fact oppressive that some people are born with it and others are born without it. But how can we tip the, t- the scales in the favor of those that may not have been born with it or walked in with it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Same thing with aspirational. You know, So for example, I, I have this conversation with a good friend of mine all the time who's been in, into triathlon as long as I have. And it never crossed her mind ever that she couldn't be a triathlete. It was just that she hadn't gotten around to it yet. Versus for me and some of my other friends, it's like, mm. I literally have never seen a black triathlete. <laughs> like I've never seen one. I haven't seen one on, even when I'm watching on TV, I've, I've never seen one. I need a visual to help me to aspire to this. Not, not saying I right. can't do it, right. but I'm a little bit closer. Uh, yes. You know, other folks may be closer to their hope and dream than others are when they don't see the visual mm-hmm. or have the modeling of it. Um mm. Okay. So that, so, okay. So then you've got a piece here where what you're articulating is seeing someone who looks like you um, is the aspirational capital piece. Um, it's not, it's, di- that's different from the inspiration porn piece, right? Because that's, that's right. an out, that's out group in group, right? That's, that's me right. saying this person is different from me. And if they can do it, I can do it. Whereas you're that's saying right. it's, um, this person looks like me and they're a role model for me because they share my identity or some part of my identity. Exactly. Exactly. So, so as a black woman, you know, as I got started, I didn't really see any model. Now there were people out there, but again, I was outside of the community trying to come into the community. Now we're in a situation where we have the wonderful Sika and we have Max and we have a bunch of other people. So now younger kids see Sika and they're like, oh, well, yeah, very much is possible, right? It's it's almost like my sons never having lived in a world that didn't have a President Obama as a Black male leader yeah, of the free yeah. world. And regardless of where your politics fall, at least they can't walk around saying they've never seen it before. Whereas my parents, getting close to their 70s, spent the majority of their life having never seen it. And so therefore, it was never real until- right. He yes. put his hand up there. So yeah. see what I mean? So that that kind of aspirational capital, I think, is really um, something to consider to put in the center of endurance sport. How do we make sure that we have that aspirational capital without turning it into inspiration mm-hmm. porn at the same yeah. time? So yeah. I love how we're holding that together. Yeah. Um, now, I think this is where it gets really interesting and the rubber meets the road with 
our clubs and groups. Familial capital. And it sounds, it is exactly like it sounds, familial family. What families do we use to gain cultural knowledge about our groups or institutions? So do you have a group of people who can show you the ropes to endurance sport? Do you have a group of people around you? Because I think that that's what gets really interesting because with familial capital, when we think about our students, Lisa, for example, the <laughs> oftentimes the student who ends up being the president of the SGA at the university uh, it was the older sibling to a bunch of, <laughs> they, they know how to manage a group. Right, they right. know how to yep. break up disagreements. Yep. They know how to bring together unlikely alliances, all these different things that they practiced in their families. And then they bring that very knowledge into the work that they do on a day-to-day basis. And so how can we do some of those similar things where, you know, oftentimes it's been seen as a negative. Oh, well, you know, this person is from a big family. And so, you know, they, they have a lot of responsibilities on their plate. Versus this person has a big family, which means based on all that they've achieved, they know how to manage their time. They know how to leverage relationships. They know how to uh, function within a larger group and not just to themselves. So they're probably very relatively unselfish people. So how can we translate family skills into endurance sport in ways that are useful? That's also mm-hmm. something to really consider you know, mm-hmm. who, who's in charge or who's the, who's the lone yeah. ranger and why, and how can we put them on the right seat of the bus? Right. Um, because there's a place for all of that, I think. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and I, I'm an only child, Lisa, so I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm an only child. So I'm very used to being independently thinking. So I'm not going to assume that things will happen if they, if I don't make them happen, they don't. And so me working on teams is my area of growth <laughs> that I have to leverage in my endurance right. sport community, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other people yeah. that have, you know, different birth order or what have you might have to think differently about that. That's interesting. So, you know, growing up in a large family um, is a benefit in the sense of framing it around organization, communication, sharing, um, you know, peacemaking, um, that's, that's really interesting. Cause I do think you have that cultural knowledge comes through your actual family. Like if you have a, um, if your parents mm-hmm. were active triathletes or active cyclists, right. You're going to mm-hmm. acquire that familial knowledge, but then also thinking about your club as your family, mm-hmm. like you started out with that explanation. So how do we broaden that definition of family? Um, right and shape it so it doesn't kind of feel like that whole legacy alumni from a university and they get Mm. in because their dad and their mom and their grandmother and the great grandmother all went to that university right so it's not Mm -hmm. that it's something different yeah Mm -hmm. yep yep absolutely absolutely I love that yeah because we we have done that right we've we've created kind of this alumni thing that I'm the the senior states person in the tri club or the group what have you and you should give me this undue respect that, you know, I might not have earned from you, that type of thing. Um, So that's, yeah, I think that's really important to think about. Um, Did we talk about linguistic capital already? No, we we did not. That's an important one. And and the reason why I bring that up is because, again, it's been framed as if, for example, English not being one's first language, this is very American, U.S. American, English not being the first language is a deficit or problematic. When I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't have to be the way it is. In fact, 
if I if I hear someone speaking to me with an accent of any sort in English, I'm like, whoa, that's cool. The person I'm speaking to right now knows more than one language. First of all, they're hell of a lot smarter than I am. But secondly, they might have overcome some serious barriers to learn the English that they do know. And I'm grateful. And so therefore, how can I connect with them? Because clearly their brain functions much differently from mine. They've picked up another language, if not several. And therefore, how could that be a benefit to the group or the organization? So again, not to tokenize folks, but what does it mean to be grateful to have people in your tri-club that actually do know more than one language? So if you want to put up signage that's in multiple languages, or if you have a waiver that needs to be filled out, but someone would prefer it in an, a language that's not English, for example, how might that u- be used as a benefit right, versus right. a deficit? We, we have that all the time. I think Lisa, I think I told you that story when I volunteered in the medical tent at the Boston Marathon, the the year that it was just the year uh, Desi won and it was pouring rain. That was my year. That was your year. Okay. Same year. Okay. That was awful. Awful. Yeah, it was, it was, look, I was standing there and my toes were freezing and I, I wasn't even doing anything. I did my best not to complain, but what was really cool about that experience in the medical tent was that When we got there, we had these iPads that we were given to basically triage. So if you came in with bib number 100, tap, tap, tap into the iPad, we can register who's in the medical tent and who was discharged, that type of thing. Well, the fact that the iPads were already loaded with multiple languages. So no matter what athlete walked in the door, if you spoke Farsi, then we could pull it up for you. It literally was that uh, intersectional in the linguistic way. So the fact that they were forward thinking to do that now, I think every time I work with an endurance sport community, I'm thinking there's no excuse. (laughs) I know Boston Marathon is a big operation and, and all of that, but there's no excuse because there's technology and lots of things available to us, including our endurance sport club members. So there's so many different ways to do it. What about linguistics in the language of sport? right? I'm thinking swimming has quite oh, the language yes, um, yes, or yes. cycling. You know, what is, what is this linguistic capital look like in that sense? Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, that's one of the things that I try my best not to do when I'm speaking to people that are new to triathlon, for example, is don't assume that they know what you're talking about. You know, if they see if they see a W, U, and a CD in the swim workout, don't assume that they know what that means. At least not the first few times, for example. Right, right. Um, or, you know, if it's, you know, if you put PSI down there, do they really know what that means? Mm. <laughs> so I, I think you're right. I think we have to be very careful not to take liberties with, yes, as you mature in the sport and get to know the sport, all that stuff will rattle off your tongue quite quickly. But in the beginning, don't assume it. Don't assume it. And so there, there's a lot of shorthand and acronyms and so forth that we use that it's become second nature to us, I would think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you would uh, theoretically write as a swimmer, because that is one of the sports that has so much jargon. Mm. You acquire linguistic capital over time, right? Right. Um, and then the key would be to essentially pay that forward, right? And don't mm. hoard that knowledge in kind of an elitist way. Right, um, right. Looking, exactly. looking down your nose at someone who doesn't know what WU or CD, you know, mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how not to hoard that language? You're, you're 
reminding me of on my bulletin board at work, we know that education is just riddled with a thousand acronyms. We call it alphabet soup lots of times. And when I first started at my university, I was given a couple of sheets to put on my bulletin board that had all of the acronyms for everything on campus. So what does OIE mean? What does, you know, what does TU ROAR mean? All these things mean something different. And so a person, now I, fortunately, I knew a lot of them because they're pretty similar statewide and I had not worked at another institution within the state. So I was kind of aware, but I love that because if I was coming from somewhere completely different, it spelled everything out for us. I haven't necessarily seen that in triathlon or in endurance sport, Ooh, yeah, but yeah, that might be a great thing to have for, especially for an endurance sport community, mm-hmm. or, you know, let's say you're a new, you're a tri club that has a, a newbie mentoring program of some sort. Do you have something shorthand uh, that's on hand to share some of those acronyms with them? That's yeah, that's a really, yeah, it's a great idea, I think. And that then kind of disperses that linguistic capital, which mm. works mm-hmm. against this kind of siloing between new and seasoned, right? That sometimes right. happens in clubs um, right. that can then make the club or the sport feel unwelcoming to new people mm-hmm. or people who don't yes. look like the majority of people in that space. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, when we get into navigational capital, I love this particular one because this is when someone has to has the skill of maneuvering through a particular institution. It's a skill set, in fact, to maneuver through particular organizations, et cetera. So I remember uh, before ever doing my first 70.3, a couple of things that we did, uh, we actually went to spectate at a 70.3 to watch how the system worked. Um, and then after that, um, I did with my training partner, we did a relay together just to get a sense of how the system itself works. So where do you rack your bike? You know, how many bike lengths apart? You know, all these different little details, some of it jargony, like the linguistic capital, but that's how we acquired navigational skills. And I think that's something we really need to foster in organizations and institutions. Folks that have navigated terrible hardship, oppression, lots of different things, they are really adept in figuring out how to navigate their environment, right? So it's a transferable skill, you know? Um, Lisa, I'm remembering one of my my graduate assistants, um, Tori, who is a fantastic uh, journalist. So I remember when she first started, she was a GA. She was um, working in my office, didn't really have a lot of money. And uh, she was having her first child at the time as she was going through this master's in journalism. What she did was genius. So the institution that I worked at each Monday published this list of events that were going on all across the campus. And what she did was she would look at that list of events and so forth and paid close attention to which ones had food, had breakfast, lunch, snack, order, whatever it was. And she went to all of those events because she did not have the money to pay for her meals while she was in school because she was saving money, you know, trying to get through school itself. But, you know, she also knew her daughter was coming. And so that's how she navigated that system to her benefit. And what I thought was so profound about that was that is a skill set. Yes, I know that survival. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it sucks that she even had to be in a position to navigate her meals and be in a, a food insecure place in her life. 
However, that's a skill set. And so, you know, for us, I think there could be ways that we could help other people develop navigational capital and endurance sport. How, how do you navigate when you're, you know, you're dropped there at your first race and you've never done it before, you know, read the athlete's guide. You know, there, there's lots of things to do, but, you know, some people may not even realize that there is an athlete's guide to tell them what to do. They're just right, thinking I show right. up and swim, bike and run. And so we don't want to assume people know how to navigate the system when they've never been in it, been through it, or have had lim- limited access to it. Would, would navigational capital also include the concept of code switching where people oh, are yes. adept at changing either their behavior, language, demeanor based on the setting that they're in? And often that is an experience people of color have when they're in all white spaces, right? They shift because of they need to, to thrive in that environment. Would that mm-hmm. fall under navigational mm-hmm. capital? I would, I would say yes to that. Okay. And, and the reason why is because again, it's, uh, I'm not saying it's a desirable skill. Like I don't want to have to change my hair or change my speech or change my attire, but sometimes that's necessary for various reasons. And so I think that's really important. You know, what's, are you aware of what you're changing and why you're changing it in order to be, a, be successful in a particular group or institution? That's, that's tough. You know, because sometimes you switch up, sometimes you don't. Um, So, you know, how do you do that and do that well is very challenging, very challenging. But again, some people do it well, some people acquire it over time. Right, right. And as a club, you can help new group members acquire that skill, right? Mm -hmm. Because you recognize Mm -hmm. how important it is and Mm -hmm. how that will ultimately enhance their experience. Right, exactly, exactly. Now, the, the last piece, which you and I, this might be the one that we're most drawn to because we do it so often, um, is that resistant capital piece where when it's important for us to use the skills to challenge when we see inequality in what's going on, right? So let's say, for example, your uh, tri-club is used to having A, B, and C groups. And there are some folks that consistently show up that you know are going to be probably in a D group, but you still want them to come and you still want them to feel engaged, et cetera. Are you going to be the voice to say, hey, we need to develop a D group because they're coming, they're here, they're excited, and they want to ride? How can we do it in a safe way? And challenging the inequities of, oh, well, you can't ride with us unless you can, you know, keep up with this, mm-hmm. these three paces, right, for example. Right. Um, or, you know, folks that show up to that swim and you're challenging inequality because you're saying, wait a minute, the only, uh, swim course that we have is a 1500 meter course. Why can't we have a 300 meter course for folks that are getting acclimated to the sport? For example, how are we going to make consistent, intentional decisions about when we're going to resist and challenge the systems that are set up that we know aren't inclusive in the way that we do Mm -hmm. them? Mm-hmm. And do that on a regular basis. Now, you and I, I think we are like walking, living, breathing, resistant capital just by virtue of having this podcast. But I think there's lots of micro ways to do that all the time in our clubs. But that resistance piece is really important, really important. And so the more you do that, the more you build resistant capital, right? Because then it becomes muscle memory, right? Then you're always thinking about um, right. Right. who's right. missing, what's not working, 
in what ways is this an exclusive event or program or club, mm -hmm. right? And that's that mm -hmm. constant thought process um, enables you to then point out the deficiencies. Um, right, right. Yeah, okay, interesting. Exactly. exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and it happens for, for those of us that have been doing it for years, it has started to happen naturally. But for other folks, we're hoping that you're, you know, you're, you've gotten started on this journey, hopefully by hearing, even listening to this podcast. So for example, you know, showing up to check in for your next race and you're picking out a shirt. We've talked about the dog on shirts a thousand times, right? But you're picking out your shirt um, and you notice that there, there isn't really a gender neutral cut, for example, or whatever it may be, right? You know, how, how are you starting to pick up on those things that are possibly inequitable uh, in your events or in your training? And what are you going to do to resist when that happens? What are you going to do mm -hmm. to call out when that happens? Yeah. Or um, my good friend who I was in a race, this was gosh, now two, almost three years ago. And we knew that there was a group of 40 women of color that attended that race. But when we looked at all of the, um, the publicity and all of the coverage, the, the Monday morning after that race, we did not see not one person of color in any of the photos that were published on their website anywhere. Resistant Capital was the tri-club president sending a really clear email <laughs> to that publication saying, here's hundreds of pictures of people of color that you did not include. Right. Right. I, we need you to update that story. Right. That's resistant capital. Right. So we, I think it's a, like you said, it's a muscle that we continue to flex and build over time, but this whole umbrella of community cultural wealth, I think it can be kind of central to the work that we do and all of these different arms to it, social, aspirational, linguistic, familial, navigational, resistant, Y'all get an A plus if you remember all six of those, um, but <laughs> they'll be in the show notes. But for all six of those, I think that we would be firing on all cylinders if we could use these right. to really frame how we do this work. Yeah. And that example that you said about the tri-club president stuck out to me because they're also using their social capital, right? Ah, there as you go. the yep. triathlon club president. And so as president, they're probably well known in the community, perhaps known mm -hmm. by that race director. So mm -hmm. they're tugging on that piece. Um, Absolutely. And then, Absolutely. you know, engaging in the resistance capital piece too. So there's, you know, a doubling up there. And I'm sure that there's probably triple and quadruple ways that you can do this. And so yeah. it's a framework yeah. then, right? It's a framework through which we can see everything. Um, exactly. And we exactly. can center, we can center people's skills and knowledge as mm -hmm important and um addition not additions um as as a value versus a deficiency mm, there you go yes absolutely and it's and it's a lot of reframing lisa i think that's the thing that you know we've seen and heard these examples and they always seem to be bothersome right you know the bothersome d group on the bike ride for example right. well, why can't we use that why can't we utilize that in a different way and reframe it to say, oh, we're really excited that we're adding to our numbers of participants or members of our group. And so therefore, if this means that they will stay engaged and feel welcome in our club, add a D group. I don't give a damn if you add an E group, add them if, if it keeps people safe and it makes them feel included. And so it's really, um, 
you know, it, it really gives us a, a different framework through which to understand and view endurance sports. So I think Tara Yasso, I know she wrote this um, from an educational standpoint, but I think it could really be applied to lots of different settings, including ours. Yeah. And I think that that's true for a lot of theories we've talked about in this podcast, right? Is um, it's just, you just have to do a little sidestep and you can apply these things to endurance sport because endurance sport is a system and it has lots of little subsystems, right? And you are a cog in said system. And so um, there's a lot of ways to just think creatively about how you can take theories or ideas or concepts that exist outside of this area and apply it to the work that you do, whether you're a coach, race director, club Mm -hmm. president, board member, whatever that may be, right? I think that that's a useful oh, tool. So that's, that's yes. some kind of capital, right? What would that be? I don't know that it's Absolutely. on Maybe navigational capital, perhaps that you're <laughs> right. taking something from somewhere else and being adept at applying it to a new area. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think this, you know, I, I think what's so profound for me is even the name in and of itself, community cultural wealth, It's that we are better, we are richer as a community if we acknowledge and value all of these perspectives. So, uh, you know, you also hit the nail on the head for me. It's one of my favorite theories. But, you know, think about how how much more wealthy we would be as a community Mm -hmm. if we Mm -hmm. centered this uh, rather than keeping it on the perimeter of what we do. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Lisa Ringerfield, co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. We are really excited to announce that the Outspoken Summit will be returning in 2021. This year has created an opportunity for triathletes to get back in the blocks and start to rebuild triathlon to create a more inclusive and welcoming space for all. Join us from the 12th to the 14th of November as we host a virtual summit to connect with like-minded women, center women's equity in the sport, hear from industry leaders, and develop leadership skills related to our roles in triathlon. The summit will provide a rich forum to develop strong voices, inspire others, and advocate for change in the sport we love. For more information and to sign up for the event, go to OutspokenSummit.com. We hope to see you there. The Unfazed Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data. They provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash Feisty Triathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>